Let's open the word up this morning to Second Peter chapter three. It's clear as we study the Word of God that the number one priority in the Christian life is the systematic study of and the meditation upon the Word of God, that we might know the truth and walk consistently with it. And so we continue our verse-by-verse study of the Word of God by coming now to Second Peter chapter 3, and I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, Contending for Christ's Return. Follow along as we read the first ten verses, which will be our focus this morning. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. The Christian doctrine of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is considered by most to be certain proof that Bible-believing Christians are incurably naive and hopelessly ignorant. Imagine in this season of political debate where men and women are jockeying for position to become our next president. Imagine if a presidential hopeful came out with the statement that indeed I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return as he promised. I contemplated my own bid for the presidency if I were to be one of those. And if they were to ask me, Mr. Harold, what is your religious beliefs? We understand that you are a Bible-believing Christian. And, of course, my response would be that I believe that the Bible alone is the inspired word of the living God. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. It is what is our standard. It should be our standard for all that we do. It is the only inspired word of God in all other religious 
manuscripts, all other religious books are phonies and frauds. And based on that, I believe what the Bible says. God has told us that he is the creator. He is the sustainer and he is the consummator of all things. God is the one that created this world and set history into into motion. And someday he will finish it precisely as he planned and for his glory. Furthermore, I am convinced that the Lord Jesus Christ will return as he promised. He will return physically in power and in great glory. And when he comes, he will judge sinners and renovate the earth. He will also fulfill his unconditional irrevocable and unilateral covenants that he gave to Israel. And he will indeed save a future generation of ethnic Jews that he called his chosen people. I believe that the Bible says that he will rule in righteousness for a thousand years in a millennial kingdom, just as he promised. And at the end of that millennial kingdom, he will judge all who have rejected him in the great white throne judgment. And he will cast them into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And they will be tormented there day and night forever. And I also believe that he will totally destroy the universe as he promised at the end of his millennial kingdom. And all who came to him in repentant faith, believing in the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, will live with him in a glorious place called heaven. They will live with him and worship him forever. Now, after I say that, I'm sure that even before the laughter and the jeers subside, the journalists are writing headlines such as this. Presidential hopeful insults all non-Christians. Religious insanity and the radical right. I can hear it now. In fact, they would probably write a little article that would read something like this. In his recent statement concerning his belief in the second coming of Christ, Eternal damnation for all non-Christians and the end of the world. Presidential candidate David Harrell has not only destroyed any hope of gaining his party's candidacy, but has also validated the beliefs of many who fear the religious bigotry and intolerance of Bible-believing fundamentalists as being a threat equivalent to that of Islamic extremism. In a world where reason and tolerance has begun to experience significant victories over the tyranny of prejudice and religious myths, Harold has demonstrated that he, along with those of his ilk, hold to beliefs that not only defy logic, but threaten the ideals and goals of a civilized society. End potential quote. But dear friends, the sad tragedy of such ridicule is that someday the mouths of the scoffers will be stopped. They will be silenced as they stand in horror before the presence of the one they mock. We even get a glimpse of this, of the terror that they will experience in Revelation 6, beginning in verse 15. And this is a description that describes the cataclysmic judgment that God will pour out upon the earth in a time that we call the Great Tribulation, just prior to His second coming. There we read, The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they will say to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, 
for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Mockers are not unique to our modern day of presumed sophistication and spiritual enlightenment. They existed in the first century. In fact, they've existed all the way from the beginning of God's creation. But also the promise of our Lord's return has been the certain and the blessed hope of the redeemed down through redemptive history. In fact, even in the first century, the first century Christians would greet each other with Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Indeed, all who love the Lord Jesus Christ and wish to see him glorified, long to see him come, long for his return. And it is sometimes difficult for us to be patient. I was thinking about the idea of patience. You know, we live in a culture where if we wait in our car for more than a few minutes longer than we think we ought to, we insist that we have a free meal voucher from Wendy's because we had to wait too long. We live in a culture where everything is in a hurry. We have to have quick lube, speed dial, high speed Internet, instant messaging, no wait checkout. In fact, from oatmeal to modems, we demand instant everything in our culture. And frankly, having to wait on anything is considered to be a violation of our personal rights. Now, imagine how ridiculous it is, therefore, for people to believe that Christ will return after 2,000 years of waiting. The disciples were even impatient, weren't they? Always asking him, when are you, when are you going to appear in your glory? Now, you combine fallen man's natural proclivity to be impatient with spiritual blindness and unbelief, and you end up with mockery. I have divided this section of Scripture into three categories that I hope will help us grasp Peter's passionate reminder to the impatient and frankly disillusioned believers even of his day who were being bombarded by lies from false teachers who denied the promises of the second coming of Christ along with many other scriptures, many other truths in scripture. And certainly this is consistent with what we experience today from many. And the three categories are simply this. Number one, we will see the prejudice of mockers. Number two, the power of truth. And number three, the purpose of God. Now, before we look at this, first notice the passion of Peter's heart in the introduction of this section, immediately following his scathing denunciation of false teachers that we have been studying. Notice in verses one and two, he says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Now, there's a lesson to be learned here. We tend to prefer the new versus the old. We wrongly assume so often that new is always better. Now, often that is true with respect to technology. But, dear friends, it is never true with respect to the truth of Bible doctrine. Truth never becomes obsolete. 
God's revelation to us is eternally true. It is utterly sufficient. It is absolutely timeless. And we would do well to remember that in these days of religious fads and novel doctrines. So easy to be deceived by something new that supposedly no one has ever seen except this particular teacher. And so we must remember to go back to the truth as old as it may appear to be. And so Peter does exactly that. He draws us back to the truth concerning the return of Christ. And he begins by stating the problem in verses 3 and 4. And I would call this the prejudice of mockers. By the way, the term prejudice means belief without basis. It's intolerance. It's antipathy. It is hostility without appropriate cause. And here we see the prejudice of mockers beginning in verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking. What he's saying here and in other passages is that it will be inevitable that false teachers will rise up from within the ranks of the true church and they will come with their mocking, with their scoffing, with their irrational ridicule, their senseless sneering, their unfounded yet persuasive deceptions. But notice the, in, the two insightful descriptions that Peter gives us of their character and creed. First of all, their character, we see that they follow after their own lusts. Literally, the original language would help us understand that they're living according to their own desires. These people who mock, they live according to their own desires. They're not controlled by God, but they're controlled by their lusts, by their passions, by their emotions. Dear friends, you show me a person who denies the second coming of Christ, and I will show you a person who is love in love with himself as well as in love with this world. And they're tireless, tirelessly pursuing the fleeting pleasures of this life. They're living for this world, not the next. They're following after their own lusts. He also says something with respect to their creed or their belief in verse 4. They say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the Father has fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now, evidently, this was a taunting theme of the first century mockers, a view based upon, frankly, a revisionist view of history, as the Holy Spirit will reveal to us as we continue to study this text. But I want you to notice the orthodox language that the false teachers will employ. They're always so clever. They talk about the promise of his coming. Well, that's something all, all believers could identify with. It makes a person sound Sincere and even biblical. He talks about the fathers that fell asleep. Talks about creation. But may I remind you, like all wolves in sheep's clothing, false teachers will use the very language of Scripture to secretly introduce destructive heresies, as Peter has pointed out in chapter 2 and verse 1. But notice the reasoning in their fallacious argument. It goes something like this. Ha! The idea of a coming judgment... A coming Messiah and a messianic kingdom? All of that is chimerical. That, that is unreal. It's imaginary. Because ever since the patriarchs of the Old Testament, everything just goes on as it is. Ever since creation. There's not been any cataclysmic judgment. There's no glorious appearing of Jesus, of a Messiah. There's no messianic kingdom. 
Yeah, I know the Bible says that, but you've got to understand that the Bible doesn't mean what it says. Since the Lord has never returned, He obviously never will. His Word cannot be trusted. This whole thing of a second coming is a big hoax. This whole idea of impending judgment is a joke. It is fodder for fools. But my friends, this will always be the mindset of those in love with themselves and in love with this world. Especially people who will believe what they want to believe. You see, people who believe this will have no prior conviction of their own sinfulness. They've never come to Christ as Savior. They are not amazed at His grace because they've first been amazed at their depravity. These are not going to be people that love God, that have a passion for God's glory. They have no heart filled with thanksgiving for undeserved mercy and grace because of sins forgiven. This is foreign to them. These people do not want to believe that Jesus Christ, the one that they have rejected, is going to come and be their judge. They don't want to believe that. So their worldview will be utterly bereft of divine sovereignty, of divine intervention, even though the Word of God clearly says otherwise. Therefore, their mocking is prejudice. It's a belief without basis. Indeed, Peter has previously warned in chapter 2, verse 1, that they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. And in verse 3, they will exploit you with false words. They will speak out arrogant words of vanity. And even in verse 21, they turned away from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now notice next how Peter refutes this prejudiced and erroneous position with the power of truth. And here he is frankly elaborating on what he has already said in verses 1 and 2, where he's trying to stir his audience up by way of reminder because of the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles and so on. And what was the message that God revealed through Scripture, through his prophets and apostles? And here we have an understanding of this beginning in verse 5. He says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. Now let me pause here. Literally in the original language, it's saying that they are willingly ignorant of the facts. They are deliberately choosing to ignore the truth. They deliberately choose to reject the historical evidence that would refute their erroneous and biased position. That's what he's saying here. He, so for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. Well, let me pause here and explain this. Remember, God, the creator, and this is what Peter is referring to. God, the creator, spoke his creation into existence without any pre-existing materials. Ex nihilo, without anything. He just spoke it into existence. And when he did so, he set into motion all of time and history itself. Now, the mockers don't want to think about that. He goes on and he says, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And again, reference here to the creation account in Genesis 1. And you will recall that we read there that God separated some kind of, of, of water vapor that enveloped the earth from the waters that covered the earth. 
And we read in Genesis one, beginning in verse nine, that on the third day, God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So, in other words, between the waters in the atmospheric can- canopy, which was called the waters which were above the expanse in Genesis 1, 7, between that atmospheric canopy and the water that was on the surface of the earth, which were also different than the subterranean reservoirs that he describes as the fountains of the great deep in Genesis 7, 11, between all of that, the atmospheric water, the water on the earth and the water under the earth, there was more than enough water for God to do exactly what he said he would do and what he did, and that is to judge the whole world through a worldwide flood. But they choose not to remember that or to think about that. In fact, he goes on to say, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But again, all of this escapes their notice. Deliberately so. Of course, those who prefer to believe a convenient lie will ignore not only the truth of divine revelation in Scripture concerning creation, but also the truth of divine judgment in the worldwide flood in Genesis 7, where God destroyed every wicked inhabitant of the world. Only Noah and his family were saved. Many scholars have estimated, based on the genealogical records of Scripture, that there would have been somewhere around 7 billion people on the earth during that flood that died. It's fascinating to study the fossil record. And I believe that even it confirms the Bible's account of the universal flood. If you look, for example, at the massive rock strata, and enormous mountain ranges that protrude out of the earth's surface. You have their evidence to a great geological shifting of the earth's tectonic plates and volcanic, volcanic activity that would cause the earth to jettison up. All consistent with the biblical record of the flood when in Genesis 7:11 we read that all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. We can also look at the sedimentary rock formations found in large canyons, which suggest massive and very quick flooding. And all around the world, no matter where you go, what continent you go to, you can look and find massive fossil beds containing millions of fossilized species concentrated in one place. And all of these, of course, had to be killed very quickly and buried immediately under an enormous weight of sedimentary deposit. Otherwise, they would have all died at different times, and decay over time would cause them to basically disappear, turn back into dust. It's interesting that scientists estimate that the Karoo fossil field in Africa contains 800 billion vertebrate fossils. We can look around and see that every mountain in the world, and I've been on top of a number of large ones, and some of you have as well. Every single mountain, even the tallest ones, contain the fossils of sea creatures. Once again, a silent 
testimony to the wrath of God when he flooded the whole earth. A cataclysmic divine judgment. And why did he do that? He says in Genesis 6, 5, because the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But again, mockers will deliberately refuse to acknowledge these two monumental truths that Peter brings to bear against their reckless reasoning. They seem to forget that God is the creator, that he alone is therefore the one who has the right to rule over his creation as he chooses, that he is the one that set all history into motion, and that not only is he the creator and the sustainer, but he is therefore the consummator of all things. And they also forget about the universal flood that disproves, disproves their assertion that ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Wrong answer. But herein, my friends, is the magnificent power of truth that rebutes and rebuts the prejudice of mockers. And because God is the sovereign creation, He's the sovereign creator who has revealed his plan in Scripture because he has set everything into motion and because he once judged the world in the past, we have every reason to believe that he will do exactly what he has promised to do and judge it yet again when Christ returns. In verse 7, he goes on to say, but the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And here is Peter's reminder of a warning that is found all through Scripture. Again, God spoke all creation into existence by his word. He spoke the waters to cover the earth by his word. And someday he is, by his word, going to speak into existence a fiery judgment. It's interesting, is it not, that he destroyed the earth the first time with water the second time he will use fire. The Old Testament is filled with references of eschatological judgment. Likewise, the New Testament. In fact, in the New Testament, there are 260 chapters. And as we look at those chapters, there are 300 references of Christ's return. We can look at Job 21.30 and read, For the wicked is reserved for the day of calamity. They will be led forth at the day of fury. The prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 66, beginning in verse 15, Behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. The Lord Jesus Christ also said in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 40, Just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Likewise, the Apostle Paul warned of this inevitable day of fiery judgment, and I'm giving you just a few samples of these passages. In 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 6, the Apostle spoke to the, to the Thessalonican believers, and he said, It is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you 
and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Ah, but the scoffer says promises, promises, promises. Several thousand years have gone by and these predictions have still not come true. There's still no judgment. Therefore, his word is untrue. Sadly, this is a formidable argument for many Christians with weak faith. So Peter, being a faithful shepherd, encourages all of us by reminding us in verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. You see, to the cynic, the passage of time seems to be the final and certain proof against any potential promised judgment of God. But their assumption that says, in essence, since nothing has happened, it never will happen, can be refuted in many ways. But certainly one that Peter uses here is that time from God's perspective is radically different than time from our perspective. He is a timeless, eternal God. Time is utterly inconsequential to Him. His timetable has nothing to do with ours. And I might hasten to add, unlike us, God is not in a hurry. A day to Him is no different than a thousand years. And here the Holy Spirit inspires Peter to draw heavily from Psalm 90 that we read earlier, written by Moses. In verse 4 there we read, For a thousand years is in your sight are like yesterday when it passes, or as a watch in the night. So Peter's point is simply this. God has determined in eternity past the exact moment that He will consummate His glorious plan to glorify Himself And that plan is something that we call history. And only the most arrogant and frankly ignorant fool would assume that our eternal God will not do what he has promised to do simply because it seems like he's waited too long. So it can't be true. So we see the prejudice of mockers and the power of truth. And thirdly, we see the purpose of God in verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I believe the context context here makes it clear that the you, the any, and the all refer to the elect, God's chosen people, those he has predestined to save, the ones, frankly, to whom this letter is addressed. That's the context here. This is not written to all men universally. It's to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, Peter said, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. It's the one that he said in verse 4, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So the point is simply this. God is long-suffering, Peter is telling us. He is long-suffering towards His elect. As God delays His judgment upon sinners, 
He makes possible our salvation. That's the point. Now, as a footnote, some will argue that the phrase in verse 9, he is patient towards you, refers to the entire human race. That it refers to all people universally. Not wishing for any, in other words, all people. Not wishing for anyone in the whole wide world to perish for all the people, in, but he wants all the people in the whole wide world to come to repentance. And from that, there's an indication that God wishes all men, in other words, the entire race, to be saved, but he's really unable to accomplish that. He hopes that will happen, but he really, you know, there's not much that he can do. As I say, he kind of paces around the throne room of heaven, kind of biting his nails, hoping that somebody will shout long enough and hard enough and give long enough invitations and do enough emotional manipulation to get people to come forward so that people can be saved because he's certainly powerless to enact that. But I would argue that such a view violates not only the context of the passage, but is also an attack on God's sovereignty and on his omnipotence. Again, I would argue that contextually the you and the any and the all refers to the chosen, the beloved to whom the letter was written, those that he's been warning about false teachers, um, those being reminded of the promises of the second coming of their savior the, and, and warning about the mockers that will try to deny that. Peter is simply saying again that God is not wishing for any of his chosen ones to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I think that is so obvious. And so his delay in coming is a gracious act of divine long suffering in order for all of his elect to be brought into his fold. Moreover, to say that God is incapable of bringing sinners to repentance to glorify himself is frankly a way of impugning his very character. Beloved, as you look at Scripture, you see that God is a sovereign God. And you must understand that neither man's rebellion, his, his unbelief, his spiritual blindness, even his spiritual death. We know that there, man apart from Christ is a spiritual cadaver. None of that prevents him from accomplishing his saving purposes in redemption. Psalm, Psalm 115, verse 3, we read, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. There's nothing that restricts Him. In Daniel 4, 35, we read that all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Indeed, we read in Ephesians 4.11 that he works all things after the counsel of his will. So we must also understand that Scripture is very clear. And I want you to hear this. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked or the judgment of the wicked. But for reasons that he alone knows, in the counsels of his own sovereign will, he has not chosen all sinners to be saved. Now, I know a lot of people do not like that, but Scripture is very, very clear about this. Indeed, he does not want any of his elect to perish, but for all of us to come to repentance. And this is the purpose of God in redemption and, frankly, the purpose in his deliberate delay. 
But I want to digress for a moment because I know that some of you students, some of you theologians are going to ask this. And so I decided I might as well address this for just a few minutes here this morning rather than addressing 15 or 20 of you via the email over the next two or three weeks. If you insist that the any and the all here in chapter 3, verse 9, refers to everyone in the whole wide world, that it is universal in scope, that it is not limited to the elect, or if you would argue, you know, Pastor, even if this doesn't refer to that, even if it is a reference solely to the elect, as you say, doesn't God desire all men to be saved? Isn't that what God wants? Surely the gospel is a plea to all men. Surely the gospel message is not something that is disingenuous, and that, that when Jesus preached, he wasn't just kind of saying things, but he really wasn't making that available to all men. And why, if God desires all men to come to repentance, why don't they, if he is capable of doing that? You, you, you say, and I see the Scriptures, that He is sovereign over all things, that He's capable of doing that. Well, if He desires that, then why doesn't everybody get saved? Well, folks, you must understand that I believe the Scripture does teach that God d- does desire all men to be saved. That the Gospel message is not disingenuous. For example, in Ezekiel 18.32, we read, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. And Jesus even tearfully lamented when he looked out upon apostate Jerusalem. He said, how often I wanted to gather you children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. So, yes, I believe God wants all men to be saved. That is his desire. But, friends, that is not his decree. Now, please hear this. As we look in Scripture, we see that God does not always decree what He desires. There are two kinds of wills of God that we see in Scripture, a position, by the way, with considerable biblical support, and you must make a distinction between them. There is, first of all, the preceptive will of God. This is His will of precept or command as we would see in Scripture, where we we can read what His will is here, where He declares what should happen. This is also called His revealed will or His moral will. But there is also another kind of will called His decorative will. In other words, His will of decree, His will of purpose. And this is a will where God foreordains what shall happen. Not so much what should happen in his preceptive will, but what shall happen. And this is also called his secret will or his sovereign will. For example, to give you a distinction, his preceptive will would be when he commanded Pharaoh, let my people go. That was his preceptive will. That was a command, his revealed moral will. But in his decorative will, we know that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he refused to let the people go. So indeed, sometimes God decrees things that he has forbidden. Sam Storms, in his excellent book, Chosen for Life, 
says, and I quote, God is often pleased to ordain his own displeasure, end quote. Let me give you an example in Acts 4, beginning in verse 27 through verse 28. There we read that God secretly and sovereignly willed that his own son be delivered up to wicked men to be crucified. Now, obviously, that would not be consistent with with his moral will, but yet he decreed that to happen in his decorative will. In fact, in verse 28 of Acts 4, we read that that this was his purpose predestined to occur. So, in other words, Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews were all unwitting pawns in the decorative, secret, sovereign will of God. Yet at the same time, he ordained them to act wickedly, thereby violating his preceptive Revealed moral will. So indeed, there are times when God decrees things he does not desire. Now, this can be applied to salvation in the text that we have before us. While God's revealed will is that all men come to repentance, as some would interpret this passage and others. And and indeed, I would agree that the gospel is available to all. You must remember that he is only decreed for some, not all, to be saved. He desires for all to be saved. He's only decreed some to be saved. Again, quoting Sam Storms. If this distinction is biblical, he says, and I'm convinced it is, the point would be that God's revealed will of precept is that all people, without any exception whatsoever, be saved, that all come to that repentance which leads to eternal life. But his will of decree is that only some be the recipients of eternal life. Thus, Whereas God's revealed desire is that all may be saved, his secret and sovereign ordination is that only some be chosen to life eternal. End quote. Now, with that digression, we go back to Peter's words, back to our text. And keep in mind here that Peter is reminding his readers that God's delay in returning is a merciful act. He's not willing for not willing or wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance and that his ultimate purpose in redeeming the elect and judging those who reject him will not and it cannot be thwarted. And so Peter concludes this section by reminding us of the unparalleled period of divine judgment that he calls the day of the Lord. And we read this phrase many times in Scripture The day of the Lord, a time that will include a period just before his second coming, the time during the tribulation, as well as at the end of his millennial kingdom. We read about that, for example, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. And this is Peter's reference here at the end of the millennial reign. Verse 10, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, let's pause for a second. How would a thief come? What is this metaphor telling us? It's simply saying, even as a thief would come suddenly and unexpectedly and with disastrous results, so too will be the day of the Lord, God's time of judgment. You see, friends, this will be a time that will occur even before his second coming. When his patience will run out and the last of his chosen ones will be saved. The the delay will be over. 
The times of the Gentiles will cease. The opportunity for repentance will be over forever. But at the end of the millennial kingdom, again, he's referring here in verse 10 to that day of the Lord. It'll come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. He's describing here very vividly a time of disintegration, a time of uncreation, a time when the universe will dissolve. And you must remember the creator And the sustainer of this universe is the one that upholds all things according to the word of his power, we're told. In other words, he's keeping all of the atoms together. And physicists still do not understand how the positive and negative force stays intact. But God holds it together. And now at the end of time, he allows all of those atoms to split apart as he uncreates that which he originally created So the creator and sustainer who currently prevents the atoms from splitting apart will no longer do so. In fact, Jesus described it as a time in Matthew 24, 35, when heaven and earth will pass away. That's the idea. Peter uses the same concept here. He says it will pass away with a roar, a word that is used in the original language. A onomatopoeia word, it's called. It's a word that sounds like what it means. It's a whizzing, explosive sound, as we would use the word or clang or buzz or whatever. It's a sound, frankly, that we have never heard. A sound of atoms splitting apart, causing all matter to disintegrate. And then we read that the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, some of you might be listening to me and ask, why would God do all of that? Assuming all of that silliness is true. Well, friends, the answer is very simple. And please hear it. God will do this because God hates sin. And because God is going to glorify Himself. And because sin has tainted this universe. And God is going to utterly eradicate all of it. And He will recreate, the Bible tells us, a new heaven and a new earth where those that He has purified by His saving grace will live eternally in the presence of His glory, worshiping Him forever. That's why God will do it. Oh, child of God, pay no attention to the coarse jesting of fools who scoff at your faith, but be encouraged. Jesus will return just as He has promised. And yes, today is a day of scoffing, a day of laughter and mockery. But sadly, their laughter will one day be silenced and it will be silenced forever. And tragically, for those of you who do not know and love Christ, it will be too late. Therefore, dear sinner, I would say to you, Those of you who have never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, never cried out to Him for the undeserved mercy that He will give you instantly. If you humble yourself before Him, I would say to you, come to the Lord before it's too late. Ask Him to forgive you for your sin. Place your faith in Him and Him alone as Savior. Make Him the very Lord of your life. 
You see, God is just to damn you, but He is also just to save you because of Christ, because of Christ alone. So if you cry out for a righteousness that is not yours and say, Oh God, give me the righteousness of Christ. I know it is undeserved, but Lord, I beg you to save me. We know that He will. He has promised to do so. But may I say in closing to all of you who do not know Christ and who frankly want nothing to do with Him, from this day forward, may you never say in this life or the life to come that you did not hear the Gospel and that you were not warned. May God have mercy on your soul. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for these compelling truths that come alive to us by the power of Your Spirit. We thank You for giving us a glimpse into Your glory as we even behold it through Your wrath and through Your judgment. But, oh God, we all have loved ones and friends that we wish so desperately would place their faith in the living Christ before it's too late. And Lord, we thank You that You are long-suffering. We thank You that You are merciful. But we know, Lord, that Your patience will not last forever. So, Lord, we cry out to You to bring conviction to our friends and loved ones. Oh, God, may they see the truth of the Gospel. May they see their sin for what it is and confess it and be saved. And, Lord, for those of us that know and love You, may we have a renewed sense of excitement as we anticipate Your return. For I pray this in the precious name of Jesus and for His glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.